And no one in prison tells you that as you're getting, as you're getting like, let go out of the doors. You're like, nobody's like, hey, you're getting ready to like, process a, an abundance of stimuli. Um, so prepare for that. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Vermont's prison system doesn't have a reputation for organized prisoner protest and resistance, so it's surprising that prisoners have forced a lockdown in two facilities since November. At Southern State in Springfield, a group of prisoners defended their block with barricades. Two weeks later, two prisoners refused to leave their cell at Marble Valley Correctional, triggering an extraction by a special response team. In 2014, Vermont prisoners, who had been shipped to a for-profit prison in Arizona, participated in a rebellion there. Thirteen were placed on lockdown for a month as a result. For the first part of this week's episode, we hear from Honishina. In this interview, she tells us about her experience with recidivism and problems with reentry. She also talks about the role of books and specifically how books about mass incarceration shaped her prison experiences. Here she is. My name is Onishana Biarrel. I'm what 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 the what the system would define as a recidivist, pretty much constant recidivist. I've done four out of the past six years in prison in Louisiana. Uh, Louisiana locks up more people per capita in America. And America locks up more people than anywhere else in the world. Um, um, I recently got out five, five to four to five to six months ago. Um, and I like would usually almost be consistently conscious of the time, but now have the luxury of not having to worry about how much time I've done where. The thing, the thing that comes to mind for me is, is like this reentry science that is not all the way developed. We've developed a science that like we're good at disappearing people. Prison, in essence, was made to, like, disappear or was supposed to be, like, the answer to, like, problems, like crime. But whenever I go to prison, I think, well, why does crime exist? And I ask my peers, well, why, what were you doing? What did you do to get in here? And it would almost most definitely be, like, well, I was providing in an all, providing for my family or my loved ones in an unlawful matter because of lack of opportunity and there's not like 
more or less, there's not really a lack of opportunity or like lack of resources. There's just poor distribution of opportunity and resources. And that goes like right down to like um, quality food, healthcare, and most definitely quality education. When I talk to my peers, my peers will tell you, and we have like a pretty good idea of why the system exists. It exists like for money. You know, that's that's the basis of the of the system. Now, it, the top criminologists in the 1970s were like, well, this system is not working. It's like most definitely making people worse. And if we keep going on like this, like it's just going to a bunch of people up, privatized owners and capitalists were like, if we tweak this a couple of mechanisms in the right direction, we can we can make this extremely lucrative um, at the at the expense of a lot of people, a specific demographic being black male. Now it's like being the woman of color, um, various genders of color. Um, so I know it to define it like that. My peers will most definitely define it as like like a rich white person's world and a rich white person's game. This is just game. This is why like rich white people, rich white people just want to see you locked up. And, you know, in layman's terms, that is correct. It's a hundred percent correct. But I think sometimes the adversity or the oppression gets erased or delegitimized because they didn't put it in like a, like a linguistic ballet. They didn't put it like that. You know, it's very black and white. But back to, like, the science of reentry, the science of reentry is, like, underdeveloped. And, like, the science of, like, f***ing you over with a lot of trauma or messing you over with a lot of trauma is, is overdeveloped. What I've gone through and what people around me have gone through and what people were able to see and not able to see was, like, you have to reprogram yourself immediately as you get out your brain goes into like a shock period because you you see the same people same colors and have the same routine day in and day out and then boom you go back to like this colorful new orleans area or wherever you were like new york i'm sure is like equally as traumatic it's called post-incarceration syndrome and your brain has to get used to processing that level of stimuli and no one in prison tells you that as you're getting as you're getting like let go out of the doors you're like nobody's like hey you're getting ready to like process a, an abundance of stimuli um so prepare for that so like the two times that the first time i did a year and seven months and only made it out three months before I was right back in prison and it was like dealing with identity, dealing with sexual assault as an assigned male at birth. And like, there's not a lot of outlets for that. There's n almost no outlets of, or support systems regarding like male sexual assault.
only made it out three months. And then I like broke under pressure while being on parole, ran the risk of getting like a 14 year sentence because I had violated my parole. I threw a, a cinder block through a coffee house window and then went to a facility called Hunts. And it was what it was, Hunts, it was still a part of OPP. Hunts is a prison located in in Baton Rouge and OPP is located in New Orleans, but OPP is so overpopulated now like they have to now use a section of hunts for to cater to their like mentally ill population. So I went to hunts and I was on single cell restriction for eight months. That's 23 hours a day. Only allowed out an hour a day for showers and stuff like that. So thinking back on that period, developmentally disabled people of color are the only developmentally disabled people that I've seen behind bars like clearly should not be here clearly like vaguely knows right from wrong clearly like like really nice ass people really nice people with the exception of maybe asking you for too much of your resources at the most like no you can't have any more coffee well why not kind of thing like and it's because they have like a child brain. I've only seen the system put that demographic of people behind bars, never never the Caucasian, developmentally disabled Caucasian, never. I don't know. That's one thing that stuck out from that particular period. I think part of the reason why like the good times really stuck out to me is because I've had so many bad times for a long, long, long period of time. I've had so many so many bad times. So when I was able to, like, accumulate, like, a family unit, you know, and, like, a significant out of, like, purity with no, like, superficial intent, you know, why parting ways with those particular things was so tough for me in the past was because I've had long, long far longer periods of being in pain and frustration than I have had like good times they've been really really small and when you do have good times they like they feel really good and it's hard not to get attached to those particular things you know which inevitably 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 led to like my my next incarceration was um after I had lost a lot of things that I conjured after the Trump administration and um, learning about disenfranchisement, learning the sciences behind bureaucracy, becoming legally and politically minded while having to look over your shoulder in a violent territory and a violent environment. You have to be like of a higher consciousness in order to do that because it's like, it's deep subject matter that takes a lot of studying. And then you have to go back and forth to like engaging with your peers on a, on a layman's level to going back to like trying to understand political theory, bureaucracy, doing like the research on the history of mass incarceration for 
the black American. And like, sometimes like my grief within the prison industrial complex has been on myself. The sole purpose while you're in there is, is for like minor attempts at escapism, television, books. You're supposed to read a book in prison to get your mind out of prison. You're not supposed to read a book about prison while you're in prison. That's the reason why a lot of my cellmates didn't really want to be in the cell with me too long. That's why a lot of my peers and close, close friends that I've had in prison, they would only come around so often because they knew that they were going to get like an earful of um, uh, corrupt society and thriving white supremacy and how we need to counteract that. You know, which is really, really, really difficult. It's a really, it's a really difficult mind frame to to have consistently in there because it can contribute to you going bald or like wrinkles or like possible heart troubles. So that's another thing that I learned about that some of my peers, while I was writing them, they didn't want to give me this particular information on learning about cortisol within the prison industrial complex and how it affects your body and how it affects your brain chemistry. And then me learning that you didn't have to have blunt force trauma directly to your brain in order for your brain to have physical changes within it and like... You know, that that was like subject matter I didn't share with my peers because I was like, damn, this is really, really stressful to sit here and process while I'm in here knowing now like the science of what's happening to my body and my mind while I'm in here. To get to that level of consciousness within the prison industrial complex now is somewhat of a privilege because your oppressor is not going to give you the tools to liberate yourself. Um, the only reason I was able to get to that level was because of me conversing, sharing time and space and energy with people that validated my ideals, sharing space with prison abolitionists, thoughtful prison abolitionists. That was the only reason why I was able to get to the literature I was able to get. Now it's, I think with the example, and this is like, you know, one of the few, but like with the example of Malcolm X going to prison and becoming of higher consciousness and deeply eloquent and deeply engaging and going from like fifth or sixth or seventh grade education to like a college PhD level philosopher, political theorist, like they don't want to let that ever happen again. They don't want to let that ever happen again. So literature in the prison industrial complex has become limited, extremely limited to the point where there's like campaigns of having like hundreds of books deemed not suitable for the prison industrial complex. Um, one book in particular, which I had to reread a couple times. And the average individual has to, the, the person that's attending college has to reread this particular book a couple times. The New Jim Crow, I had to read that a couple times and I had to go in the dictionary and like figure out this terminology. And like, it was like, it was like going to school, reading this book and take notes and underlining, increasing pages. These are all mechanisms tied into making sure that there is like a turnover rate 
or recidivism a high at some point the term the recidivist rate in 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 New Orleans was 86%. 86% of the people that were incarcerated and got out were were inevitably inevitably going to come back. 86%. Um and all these all of these things are like tied into make sh- making sure that that outcome happens this time around his a hundred percent been on me and what little resources I have been able to conjure. There are no re reentry resources whatsoever. I'm still house to house as we speak. And like to ask a person to just like, okay, now assimilate into society, you know, assimilate and become like a working mechanism in society and if you don't have like the bells and whistles or like the aesthetics that appease the the like the tapestry of mainstream society you will fall most definitely if you if you're not if you don't have like some type of appeal you will fall and so where you will find yourself is like the disenfranchised marginalized zones and we're all toppled over each other, jobless, moneyless, homeless. We're toppled over each other and stressed out. And if you haven't accepted the fact that you can go no higher and like, just like, if you haven't accepted that, then I don't know, you will almost inevitably be befallen by like self-medication. And I think that's like a, a coping mechanism with not being able to go any higher on higher beyond your disenfranchisement and marginalization. I think society at large self-medicates, but like particularly like the felonized, disenfranchised, marginalized self-medicate because where they are on a societal level. And now, we share another piece recorded on the inside. Just like last week, this is from Muti Ajamu Oseburu. Our friends over at the prison radio show sent along this audio. About Muti, they wrote, quote, Muti is currently serving life without parole in a Pennsylvania state prison. He was sentenced as a teenager and maintains his innocence. Muti has been an advocate for other people who are sentenced to life without parole as children and has been speaking out about his own case for years. He is now in his 50s. In the last 15 years, the U.S. Supreme Court has made a number of rulings about people in Muti's position. According to a Sentencing Project article, quote, Since 2005, Supreme Court rulings have accepted adolescent brain science and banned the use of capital punishment for juveniles, limited life without parole sentences to homicide offenders, banned the use of mandatory life without parole, and applied the decision retroactively. In 2012, the court ruled that judges must consider the unique circumstances of each juvenile offender, banning mandatory life sentences without parole for all juveniles. In 2016, this decision was made retroactive to those sentenced prior to 2012, unquote. They go on to say, quote, However, Muti remains in limbo, incarcerated in a state that's faced its own scandals, 
in the justice system in the last few years. For those not following, in recent years, Philadelphia district attorneys have been convicted and gone to jail, prosecutors have been caught up in porn scandals, and state Supreme Court rulings forced the city to drop charges against hundreds of people. Judges, who were former district attorneys, have been chastised for presiding over appeals of cases that they may have been involved in prosecuting. In the midst of all this, Muti is still in prison. Unquote. And now here he is, reading one of his pieces, entitled The Opioid Cell Phone. The opioid cell phone, 11-16-19. Quite a bit has been said and written about both the addiction of cell phones and the opioid epidemic surging through white rural America like pestilence on a cash crop. While this past Tuesday, I got to see the merger both. The opioid cell phone in the middle of the sticks, that's S-T-I-X, that is Hades in the mountains. A literal daymare where white poverty is so brutal it makes the stereotypical urban ghetto housing look plush. My fiance, an urban farmer who frequently travels throughout rural Pennsylvania, had a comment in passing, excuse me, made a comment in passing some time ago about how the opioid drug tsunami that had hit rural white and their housing was so vicious that it made the governmental crack bombs dropped on urban centers look like cozy condominiums in comparison. While I was overwhelmed with the myriad of negative stimuli on my unplanned but very much appreciated safari through the rural Pennsylvania, it was a clear gaze into a bay window of unreported and well-hidden other side of systemic white supremacy that is never articulated. Just as expressive and definitive of the real intent of the 1%, the architects and engineers of American white supremacy, for most white people, the sightseeing was truly a priceless education. I noticed a white couple in a diner, seated at a window table. While they were together, they looked a thousand miles apart. While he was looking out the window searching for anybody, anything to connect with, she was locked into her cell phone, mindless, mindlessly scrolling up and down as if there wasn't, as if he wasn't even there. It was very telling because all the other tables on both sides of the couple were empty. And the distance between them was so obvious that they could have been closer had they not, had they gotten up and each moved to a separate table. I realize that there is their personal story, but by them being in a community surrounded by unimaginable squalor and unremitted poverty, I started thinking about their context within the big picture. Surrounded by all of this crushing poverty, white people, like all others similarly situated, are desperately looking for an exit door. While the types of escape differ long-term and short-term, they still provide a way out, real or imagined. Most of them are at the expense of others, thus unreal. Some of their long-term exoduses are prison, guard, military, fracking, all of which is to the detriment of others, caging, killing, and poisoning the environment and the bodies of its denizens for four feet. The short-term escapes are quick fixes, usually at the expense of self, alcohol, drugs, tobacco, crime, and to a lesser degree, obsessions with gambling, sex, eating, shopping, etc. But the escape hatch most slept on is the cell phone, a device that can enable its user 
to do almost all the others while sitting in place. The Madison Avenue line has been that cell phones will connect you to the world to people all over the globe. But what's left out of this pitch is that phone designers create software that stimulate your brain in the same manner that some drugs do. That release endorphins from the pleasure centers in the brain the same way that cocaine, molly, K2, and other addictive stimulants do. So what is marketed as a device that will connect you to the world and the people around it actually addicts you to being absent in your world, addicted to checking out of the here and now and going to over there and later. It's not people connectedness, it's people isolation. It's the seduction of providing the ability to not be, attention-wise, present where you are and with whom you are, to be somewhere else that is most cases may or may not be relevant. The possibility of being mentally elsewhere, fully engaged, at the press of a button becomes the permanent novelty, a novelty of addiction. Novelty is not the same as curiosity. For natural thinking people, the impetus for curiosity mostly denotes and connotes intellectual and spiritual discovery and enlightenment, whereas novelty often just describes newness. Not whether or not the person, place, or thing is of probative value, relevant to the fulfilled life or edifying, but only that it is new, and that that newness could be growth or stagnation or even regression. Old wine and new bottles, if you will. Cell phone novelty, i.e., that never-ending release of some new aid or innovation, has come to mean less of exploration by inquiries for knowledge's sake and more about mindless pursuit of time-killing or filling up on busyness. Busyness would be lots of activity with very little or no substance of all diving headfirst into endless distraction while psychologically running from spiritual reflection, conceptual thinking, solitude, introspection, and critical self-examination. The chasm between the white royal couple in the diner was just another example of perhaps one of the biggest addictions in the country, chosen as an escape hatch by a group of people virtually unfilmed on the nightly and national news and unreported on while in their long life habitats. This is what I think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was referring to in his The Drum Major Mentality speech, recalling being in jail and debating with a sheriff deputy in rural South. After questioning the white deputy on where he lived and how much money he was making, Dr. King was very familiar with the poverty in that area. After getting the answer from the deputy, Dr. King felt sorry for him and exclaimed, I'm sorry to hear that. This is why you should be out there marching with us. If more people witness this deplorable living condition and how cell phones are used to parachute out of them, less people would be fooled. In the bowels of America's Dome, I am Muti Ajimor Saburu, a child from Pennsylvania's other death row, death by incarceration, engineered by the city of Philadelphia. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine.
For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.